In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So as I said earlier, over the season of Lent, we're going to take time to look at the Ten Commandments. So I'll be off lectionary a little bit. But Lent in the church tradition and in church history is always a time of preparation. So historically, Lent was the opportunity to teach the catechumens, those who wish to be baptized, to teach them the basics of the faith and to prepare them to be baptized on Easter. And so Lent in our tradition has always been a time to look at the basics of the faith, to prepare ourselves for the joy of Easter, and also to examine ourselves, to examine our sinfulness, to examine where it is we need to repent and where it is we need to rely on God. So on Ash Wednesday, we began with the understanding of the commandments as a mirror, right? Or like walking in to the doctor's office for an examination. And so we're going to lift up the Ten Commandments and we're going to see our sin. And we're going to see just what sins we have that we can and should hand over to Christ who bears our sins for us. And so this morning, we're going to lift up the first commandment. In a lot of ways, the first commandment is the most important commandment, the most basic commandment, and the one that's going to inform all the others, and the one that's going to inform our very life of faith. And so the Ten Commandments, as you might remember, begin like this. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods. And so first thing we want to pay attention to is to notice that the commandments begin with a statement of fact. I am the Lord your God. They do not begin with, I want to be your God, or if you behave, I will be your God, or I was the God of your ancestors, but rather they begin, I am your God. And so very beginning of the commandments, they begin to describe our relationship to the Lord. He is our God. And so this is good news. The commandments begin with a declaration of gospel. They begin with a piece of good news because the Lord is our God. And to understand why that is good news, we need to look at the word God. Because God's not a proper name, like Ryan, but rather God is a title, an office, a job, if you, if you will. And so the word God, like mother or father, is a relational title, but it can be used as a name out of respect. We don't use our parents' first names. We call them mom, dad, mother, father. And thus we call the Lord God. But remember that God is a title. And so what Martin Luther rightly taught us is that whatever we fear, trust, and love the most will be our God or will be our God's. And we all seek goodness in our life. We all want good things to happen. And therefore, whatever we believe is the true source of goodness in our life is going to be our God. Our hearts were made to cling on to the good. Our hearts were meant to search for the good. And so it will be the thing that we fear, love, and trust more than anything else that we will find is actually our God. Wherever you put your heart, wherever you put your trust, it's there you will find your God or find your gods. And so the first commandment is not strictly 
just about worshiping other gods in a religious or cultic sense. The first commandment does absolutely forbid bowing down to idols, bowing down to people as if they were gods, and it forbids worshiping the false gods of other religions. However, the first commandment is primarily about the direction of our hearts. And it asks the question of us, what do we fear the most? What brings us the most hope? What brings us the most comfort? And so the fact that the Lord is our God is good news. Because he is merciful, slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is not fickle, he's not cruel. The Lord gives life. He himself is living. The Lord hears, he blesses, he loves, he forgives. And so when the Lord says, I am your God, he's declaring that he is the source of all good things for us. God is claiming a relationship with us. And he doesn't wait on us to come to him. He first says, I am your God. He claims that spot for us. And so when we have a need, God wants us first to come to him. And so whenever we lack something we need, it's God, our Lord, who promises to provide for us. When we suffer, he promises to be our comfort. When we are need our need of forgiveness, he promises to hear our cries of repentance. He promises to deliver us from evil. And so in this way, the Lord has shown himself to us not as a faraway God up in the clouds, but he's shown himself always present with us as a loving father. What we see then is that when God demands that we fear, love, and trust him above everything else, he is showing us that he will be the source of all good things in our life. The demand of God here to love and trust him, to have him as God, that itself is a demand of good and for our good. And when God demands that we have no other gods, likewise, he is demanding that we stay away from things that will destroy us when we put our faith and trust in them. The ancient Israelites saw this when they saw neighboring peoples, neighboring countries and tribes, worshiping idols and false gods. These gods demanded the sacrifice of children on a regular basis. These false gods demanded that people cut themselves or participate in cultic rituals that consumed them. These people allowed these gods to make great demands of their bodies and souls. And yet these gods did not hear them did not see them, did not care for them in any way. The people put their hopes into these strange and cruel gods, and these gods provided them with no real goodness. They were false gods. So in our age and in our culture, most of our false gods are different, of course. Very few of us here are tempted to worship Baal or Zeus. And in our context, very few are tempted to worship the gods of Hinduism, or Allah, or other false gods. And so apart from such obvious idolatry and false religion, we have to look at our hearts to see what it is we truly fear, we truly love, and we truly trust. So for many of us in our culture, that answer and that question will begin with money and finances. Right? We fear that money that we worked hard for our whole lives and saved up for will be gone. We fear that we'll lose everything. We might be bankrupt and homeless. So many of us live for money. 
And nothing brings us as much dread as much as the idea that all of our money will be gone. It comforts us to know that we have a source of income. And when we have good savings, we're given hope by it. We come to believe that the money we have earned is a great protector against all kinds of evil in this life. We all have seen, however, and we all know that this false god, the one that believers before us often called mammon, consumes and destroys people. That a love for money turns people inward and makes people stingy and cruel. People will lie, steal, and cheat to obtain and keep their money. They'll hurt themselves. They'll hurt their families. They'll hurt others for the sake of preserving wealth. And that's all a familiar story that you know. And there are many, many, many other common false gods in our age we could identify. Politicians are often false gods for people, right? If only so-and-so gets elected, that person will be the source of so much good in this world. That person will solve our problems. That person will deliver us from evil. And they put their faith in politicians that they make godlike. Science and medicine become gods in our age. There's a belief that if we just trust in scientific progress, then all the good we need will be taken care of. Romance and intimacy are common false gods. If we just find the right person, have the right kind of relationship, then we will find the true source of goodness and happiness in this life. And families can be false gods. Race can be a false god. Social status, education, and so on. All can be false gods if we put our trust in those things. People, of course, also make things we might consider more trivial to be gods. Right? There are people who seriously read their horoscope in the newspaper every day and believe it. They put their trust in the supposed signs of the stars and believe that if they trust the signs, then their life will be directed to good. There are people who need to sell their house, so they bury a statue of St. Joseph in their yard, putting their trust in a little piece of plastic to be their source of good. And of course, that's something we might joke about and something some of us might not take too seriously but it's all a sign of misplaced trust. And misplaced trust is at the root of all sin. And there's really no end of examples. We could come up with examples of misplaced trust over and over. The reformers taught us that human hearts are factories of idols. Our sinful hearts are constantly looking for things to trust and fear and love rather than seeing God as the source of that which is truly good in our life, and trusting in him to provide. It is our story, and it's the story from the beginning. In Eden, the serpent convinces Eve not to trust in God's word, that that one particular tree will be her undoing, and instead trust that he knows better. And so Eve puts her trust not in God, but she puts her trust in the serpent, and she puts her trust in herself, to make the most rational decision that she believes. And when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, this is what Satan tries to do to him. Can he get Christ to trust in some other plan than God's plan for the salvation of the world? But of course, what we will see is that Jesus is perfect in faith because he always trusts in God as Father. He trusts in God right through his death on the cross. And then on Easter Sunday, of course, his faith is vindicated and he's raised from the dead. As Christians, we remember, of course, that Jesus is given to us and for us for our salvation. 
And so we put our faith, that is our trust, not in our ability to be perfect. Because we already know that our hearts will wonder. We will constantly fail with this very first commandment. We're not going to live up to it. Because we find so many things to put our trust in rather than God our Father. And so what we're reminded to do is to put our trust first in the perfect faith of Christ. Because once we put our trust in Jesus' perfect faith, then everything else begins to open up to us. We will see the Lord as the one who is the source of all goodness for us. And every day we will learn that he is truly our God. Because Christ has taken care of us. Christ has saved us. And so we begin by trusting in what he does. And the rest begins to open up. And so in your Lenten disciplines, hold up the first commandment and look into it. Right? Find your false gods and let Christ destroy them. Ask yourself, what do you really fear? What do you really put your trust in? What keeps you up at night? And whatever it is, name it for what it is. Name it for the false god that it is. Name it for the thing that's consuming you, that's giving you anxiety, that's worrying you. And instead, look to God, your Father, because he is the true source of all that is good in your life. Amen.